0: God is at work through His local church and through the teaching of His Word. This morning on Radio, we are pleased to share a favorite message from Lincoln Berean Church. Here is Pastor Brian Clark. It started out like any other day. Whatever hopes and dreams she once had, had given way to survival. She was outcast. She was immoral. And her days were filled with shame. She had no idea that an ordinary, routine trip to the well would change her life forever. Her story is found in John chapter 4. If you have a Bible, I invite you to join us. Last, we left our story in John's Gospel. We learned that the ministry of John the Baptist was decreasing. The ministry of Jesus was increasing Therefore, chapter four, verse one, therefore when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to the city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So you remember the Pharisees were the religious leaders that already were concerned about John's movement. So now with Jesus' movement increasing beyond John's, the potential of more tension between the religious leaders and Jesus was increasing So Jesus is moving out of the southern area called Judea to travel up north to Galilee, which is the area where he was born. So the text tells us he had to go through Samaria. It's helpful to understand that's not a geographical reference. It's a missional reference. So what I mean by that is this. In the south, so down around uh, Jerusalem, was the area called Judea. So Jerusalem would have been the primary hub there and the home of the religious leaders of the day. Right above that to the north was an area called Samaria. Right above that uh, to the north then was an area called Galilee, which is where Jesus was, uh, uh, grew up and lived. So the shortest route from the south to the north would have been straight. But to do that, you had to go through Samaria. And there were hundreds of years of conflict between the Samaritans and the Jews. The Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans hated the Jews. It's a long story. The Samaritans were kind of a part Jewish mixed race with other races. There's a lot of conflict. At one point, they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. The Jews went in and tore it down. Uh, A lot of conflict. They just really didn't like each other at all. So typically, when a Jew, certainly a practicing or orthodox Jew, a rabbi, would head to Galilee, they would go out around by the Jordan River, even east of the Jordan, and then come in at Galilee. So Jesus could have traveled that path. That was the customary path. So when the text tells us he had to go through Samaria, it's saying not because there wasn't a route, but because he was on mission. And Jesus knew there was a harvest waiting for him in Samaria. It's also interesting to notice that the text tells us Jesus was weary. We're always kind of confounded by this uh, mysterious doctrine of uh, the fact that Jesus was both fully God and fully human. And what exactly does that mean? But as a human, he grew hungry, he grew tired, he was weary. And he was looking for a place to rest comes uh, to a city named Sychar, and there is Jacob's well. It's a piece of ground that Jacob gave to Joseph. They had dug a well there. By the first century, that well was about 1,800 years old and still producing water. As a matter of fact, it's still there today, and it's still producing water. Quite amazing. Somewhere 100 foot or more deep. So typically, they would build a rock wall around the well in order to make sure that critters and people didn't stumble into the well. So it's likely Jesus gets there and he's sitting down on that wall that surrounds the well. The sixth hour would be uh, noon. So it's Jewish time, heat of the day. A very unusual time for a woman to come to the well. Verse 7, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Now, you have to appreciate how many social barriers Jesus uh, climbed over to have a conversation with this woman. First of all, it's unusual for a Jew to be traveling through Samaria, it was very unusual for a Jewish man to speak to a woman in public. As a matter of fact, most Jewish men didn't even speak to their wives in a public setting. So Jesus, as a Jewish man, a rabbi, is speaking to a woman, but not just a woman, a Samaritan woman. So this woman is, is taken aback by this, and rightfully so. This is contrary to everything she understood I would say when she responds to Jesus, the the language I would use is it's a bit sassy. Uh, She's got an attitude. This is a woman that's been hurt. She's been rejected. She's been despised. She knows that the Jews look down on them as Samaritans. She's got a bit of an attitude, and that's reflected in her comment to Jesus. What's the deal? You being a Jewish man, speaking to me as a Samaritan woman. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God... And who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. This is a great response. She kind of throws this attitude out. Jesus doesn't bite, but rather he responds, if you just knew who it is that's talking to you, and if you only knew what I have to give you, you would realize I have what you've been looking for your entire life. One of the things we've talked about a lot in this study of John's gospel is wrestling with the question, what are you looking for? What are you seeking for? What is it that's finally going to satisfy? This woman had a dry and thirsty soul. She had been looking for something her whole life. She had no idea that what she had been looking for her whole life was right there, standing in front of her, talking to her, ready to offer her what she needs freely as a gift, That's essentially what Jesus says to her. The idea of living water was basically a phrase that was used in those days to describe water that was moving, water that was active. So a river, a creek, it would even refer to a well if the well had some sort of a spring. That's contrary to like a cistern that just held water that quickly became stagnant. So in her mind, that's what she's hearing. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? So Jesus is offering her essentially better water. So you can hear the attitude still there. She says, You know, you have nothing to draw with. So where exactly are you going to get this better water? The Samaritans only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, what we call the Pentateuch. They didn't uh, accept anything written after that. They had really strong ties to Jacob. Their mount where they worshipped was the place where Jacob had built an uh, an altar to offer a sacrifice. So Jacob was a really big deal to the Samaritans. So essentially what she's saying is who do you think you are? You're not greater than Jacob, are you? And the, the Greek grammar there expects a negative answer. You know, she, she's certain he's not. You're not greater than Jacob, who gave us this well, who gave us this water. So what's the great water you have to offer that's better than what Jacob gave us? That's basically what she said there. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So Jesus identifies the water in this well can satisfy your physical thirst, but tomorrow you'll be thirsty again. What I'm offering you is not water like that. I'm offering you water that will satisfy your dry and thirsty soul. You receive my water and you'll never be thirsty again. Now one of the interesting comparisons to think about is Jesus had a conversation in the previous chapter with a religious leader by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus and this woman could not be more different. Nicodemus was a religious leader. He was called the teacher in Israel He would have been considered by the people a very righteous man. But something inside of him tells him he still hasn't found what he's looking for. So he goes to Jesus by night, and he's trying to figure this out. The woman at the well is immoral. She's shameful. She's a Samaritan. She's an outcast. Nobody in the city would have viewed her as righteous. Yet she, too, is searching for something that will satisfy. And while the language is slightly different, what Jesus says to Nicodemus is exactly what he says to this woman, that Jesus has what she's been looking for, and it's offered to her freely as a gift. It's very important to understand the need of Nicodemus was just as great as the need that this woman had. And what Jesus offered was the same. What you're looking for is me. Jesus said to the woman, It would become within you, no more external religion. No more ritual cleansings. You remember John the Baptist said that his baptism was just a ritual cleansing, but what Jesus would offer would be new birth from the inside out. He's changing the water to wine. He's the fulfillment of the old covenant. This is going to be something new and powerful that will be an internal new birth where she will experience this well of water from the inside out. So that's what he offers her. But the woman still doesn't understand. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. So she's still thinking water. Just like Nicodemus, she's confused by the, by the imagery, by the metaphors. What she's hearing Jesus say is I can give you something that will make your miserable life a little bit more convenient. That's what she wants. If you can save me a trip to the well every day. That sounds like a good deal. It's kind of what I would say religion offers people. People that are feeling the shame and the guilt of their sin, struggling along. What religion offers is will give you something that will make you feel just a little bit better about your life. But that's not what Jesus is offering her. So he unlocks the conversation. Verse 16. He said to her, go, call your husband and come here. Now, while this seems like a rather odd thing to say, wasn't so odd in that culture. If a rabbi is teaching a woman by herself, it would be customary for her to call her husband to come to uh, participate in the teaching. But Jesus, being God in the flesh, knows more of this woman's story. He knows this is the way to unlock the conversation. Verse 17, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Again, you can hear the attitude in this. She doesn't want to talk about it. Don't bring it up. Next question. I have no husband. But Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. So Jesus identifies that this woman has had five husbands. Now it's starting to make sense. Why is this woman all alone at the well in the heat of the day? Most of the women would have come to the well in the evening, in the cool of the day. As a matter of fact, in a culture where women were allowed very little socialization, the primary place was around the well in the evening as they would come together, catch up on the day's activities, and go back to their city. This woman is at the well in the heat of the day to avoid the social contact. She's tired of the looks. She's tired of the finger pointing. She's tired of feeling shame. So she goes when she believes no one else will be there. Now, nobody knows for sure whether she had been divorced five times, whether some of her husbands died. We're really not told. But what we do know confidently is whether it's a Samaritan culture or whether it's a Jewish culture, to choose to live with a man you're not married to would have been considered highly immoral. There's no question. Whatever has transpired, at this point, she's given up. She's given up trying to be right. She's given up trying to live within the boundaries of the culture. She's just surviving. And she found somebody to survive with. Essentially, Jesus is trying to help her understand she's been looking for love in all the wrong places. The multiple marriages gives evidence of this searching, this desire to find something that will satisfy. And what Jesus offers her is the living water that her soul has been longing for. When I read this, I do find myself wondering, what is her story? What was done to her? What has she done? What has been her story that brings her to this point of despair and hopelessness where now life for her is mere survival until she encounters this conversation with Jesus? Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So she's referring to Mount Gerizim, which was the mountain where the Samaritans worshipped, where Jacob had built an altar, where they at one time had built their temple until the Jews tore it down. So there's this ongoing conversation. Who's right, the Samaritans or the Jews? So she wants to change the subject. I want to talk about my husband's. So she shifts to this argument. Okay, we say it's this mountain. You say it's that mountain. Which mountain is correct? Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So essentially what Jesus says is the hour has come. It now is when your question is no longer relevant. So he goes back and says the Samaritans worship what they do not know. In other words, their theology is all mixed up because they only believe the first five books of the Old Testament. They were confused about a lot of things. He identifies that the temple in Jerusalem is correct. That is where God wanted it built. But the hour has come where that question's no longer relevant. Because worshipers will no longer go to a mountain. They'll no longer go to a temple. It will no longer be about cleansings and rituals and places and lands. It will be about an encounter with a person. Again, you go back, Jesus is changing the water to wine. What was ritual, what was a picture, what was a shadow is now finding reality in the person of Jesus. He's identified himself. He is the new temple. There's no longer a need for the temple. It won't be about a mountain. It won't be about a people. It won't be about a place. It won't be about any of that. It will be about an encounter with a person. Those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. It's quite a bit of discussion about what is meant by spirit. Some people take the position of kind of enthusiasm and joy, but that's certainly not what is meant. Some people take it as the Holy Spirit, and that certainly may be the case. But in this context, Jesus is talking about why it no longer will be this mountain or that mountain, no longer this temple or that temple. Essentially what he's saying is God is spirit, and those who worship him will connect with his spirit, His spirit will dwell within us and our spirit will connect with his spirit. It will no longer be an external ritual or practice or place. It will be an internal new birth experience with God himself. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise. God doesn't dwell in a building. He doesn't dwell on a mountain. He doesn't dwell in a ritual. He doesn't dwell in a relic. There's no place you can go. There's nothing you can touch. There's no place you can see where God is more present. But rather, God is a spirit, and God's spirit connects with our spirit. God is fully present within us as believers. God is just as here, fully and powerful, uh, powerfully in Lincoln, Nebraska, as he is in Jerusalem. Essentially, that's what Jesus was saying. The days of going to a temple or a mountain or a practice or a ritual or relic are over. It's now an internal, personal experience with the living God. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. So certainly the Samaritan woman has some level of teaching some level of understanding. Kind of sounds like she's not completely buying Jesus' explanation. When the Messiah comes, he'll know. And Jesus responds to her, I who speak to you am, he literally, the Greek there is, I am who speaks to you. This is an amazing moment where Jesus clearly, early in his ministry, identifies himself as the Messiah. It's worth noting this didn't happen in Jerusalem. It would have caused a riot because of the power and influence of the religious leaders. That's why he left Judea. It didn't happen in Galilee because a prophet is not honored in his own country. This is where Jesus grew up. Jesus is the boy next door in Galilee. It happened in a place where the Jews despised these people. But it was here that Jesus publicly declared, I am. Am the long-awaited Messiah. Now, the big idea of this passage is certainly Jesus's identification as the Messiah. He has come. But it's also worth noting how skillfully Jesus maneuvers this conversation to have the necessary conversation with the Samaritan woman. First of all, you have to realize how many social barriers Jesus worked his way through to even have a conversation with this woman. Jesus was far more concerned about this woman's eternal soul than he was what we would call political correctness. So he goes over one barrier after another to have this conversation. Second, notice how many times The woman basically tries to start some irrelevant argument that Jesus easily could have got drawn into. She's sporting a bit of an attitude toward Jesus as a Jewish man. Jesus could have tried to straighten her out about that and the history and who's right and who's wrong. She responds back. You're not greater than Jacob. Who do you think you are? Could have gone off on that one. She wants to get into an argument. Which mountain is right? Who has it right? But in each of those, Jesus basically ignores what she says and keeps moving toward the necessary conversation that she might encounter the long-awaited Messiah. It's just a reminder. If we're gonna be serious stewards of the gospel, this is a skill we have to learn. We cannot get sidetracked by conversations that in the end don't really matter. We don't have to argue about everybody's theology. We don't have to fix everything that we think people have wrong. In a conversation, there's dozens of ways to get off track and make a mess of the conversation. The skill is understanding what matters and not getting caught up in unnecessary conversations to keep the conversation moving toward that which will matter forever. And Jesus models that beautifully. Verse 27. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed. That word means shocked. They're just shocked. This again underscores how unusual it was that Jesus, as a Jewish man, was talking to a Samaritan woman. They're just absolutely shocked that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, "Why do you seek?" or uh, "Or why do you speak with her?" They're thinking it, but nobody's going to say it. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. The grammar is continually coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? So the disciples get back from purchasing food, and they were probably hot and tired too. They'd been traveling with Jesus. They're shocked to see Jesus talking with this woman. In the meantime, she leaves her water pot and she runs to the city. Now, people try to make some uh, kind of big point of the fact she left the water pot. I think it's as simple as she found something that she thought was far more important. She wasn't thinking about water. She's running back to the city to tell people what she's experienced. But his disciples are trying to get him to eat food. But Jesus isn't interested in the food. And you can kind of hear their frustration. And frankly, I can relate to it. Jesus has them go down to the city, they're hot and tired, they buy food, they bring it back, now they have the food, and Jesus doesn't want it. And they're kind of frustrated, like, he says he has his own food, who gave him food? You know, if he's got food, why did you send us down to the city? That's kind of where it's at right there. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered in to their labor." So Jesus, again, is speaking metaphorically. My food is to do the will of the Father. And what we have here is a harvest. Now, this idea you say, there's four months, then come the harvest. It's believed that some sort of a proverb or a saying that the people were familiar with. The basic idea is, you know, any farmer knows when you plant, then you have to wait until harvest. Well, what Jesus is saying is there will be no waiting today. The harvest is coming in. Most people believe the reference to the fields being white for harvest is referring to the fact that they could see the people coming out of Sychar towards the well in that ancient culture. They would have been wearing white outer garments because of the heat. Uh, So the field is white for harvest. They're looking at them. Here they come. In the ministry of Jesus, this is the first significant harvest, where you have all these Samaritans coming out of Sychar, and there is going to be a great harvest of souls this day. The disciples didn't sow. The disciples haven't done any of the work. That's the point Jesus is making. You didn't sow. You didn't plant the seed. You didn't do anything, only you get in on the reward. This is a great moment. And the reminder that some people sow, some people water, some people uh, reap, that that that's how God works. Now, nobody quite gets who did the sowing. Was it John the Baptist? Is he talking about the Old Testament prophets? Exactly who did that, we don't know. What we know is they had been brought to a point that when they heard the message of Jesus, they were ready to receive it. So Jesus identifies this great harvest of souls In Samaria. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Again, it's worth noting this isn't in Jerusalem. This isn't in Galilee. This is in Samaria, the place where most Jews avoided. But Jesus must go there because Jesus understood their harvest was ready. Some of them believed because of the testimony of the Samaritan woman. It's interesting to think about Nicodemus and this woman. At the end of the Nicodemus story, he's confused He's in the dark and he leaves. But the Samaritan woman believed and ran to town to share her testimony. This again is the problem with highly religious people. They're so wrapped up in their self righteousness, it's hard for them to comprehend their need for a Savior. This Samaritan woman had no self-righteousness. She had no other hope. She had long since believed she had no possibility of standing right before a holy God until she encountered Jesus. And whatever it is that Jesus told her, she believed that he was the Messiah and what he offered her was what she'd been searching for her whole life. So she runs to town. She starts telling everybody. Some believe, but many leave, come, come spend time with Jesus. He stayed two more days, and they say now it's no longer just based on her testimony, but it's based on their own encounter with Jesus. They've come to believe he indeed is the Savior of the world. So as we wrap this up, there's a couple things to think about. One is it's just this reminder that no matter how far gone you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, no matter how shamefully you've lived, no matter what's your story. The Samaritan woman wasn't more lost than Nicodemus. The biggest difference is she understood that. And Nicodemus at John chapter 3 still didn't. But it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. God offers The forgiveness of sin, he offers new life. He offers the living water that your soul's been thirsty for. And he offers it freely as a gift to those who believe. Most of us in the room, we have experienced new life in Christ. We would say that's true. We have experienced this ourselves. So what is the first thing this woman does? When she experiences new life in Christ, she runs to town and tells her story. She runs to town and tells her story. She was so excited. How could she not tell someone? Which does raise a legitimate question. If we have experienced this new life in Christ. If we found the living water that satisfies our thirsty soul, how could we not tell people that this is what we found? How could we not share our story with the people around us? So, just a question. When was the last time you shared your story with someone else? A month ago? Six months ago? A year ago? Five years ago? How could we believe what we believe? How could we experience this living water that satisfies our soul and keep it a secret? How could we not tell the people around us? Certainly we work with people that need to hear this. Certainly there's people next door that need to hear this. Certainly there's people that we do our hobbies with that need to hear this. I'm not talking about backing somebody into a corner and laying it on them. Nobody wants you to do that. What we're talking about is with love, with kindness, with compassion and respect. Just telling your own story. This is what Jesus has done for me. The woman invited the people, come see for yourself. It's not complicated. One of the reasons we're going through the Gospel of John is to encourage all of us to invite the people around us, hey, this has been meaningful to me. Just like to invite you in case you're interested. So I would encourage all of us, don't make it complicated. Don't make it more difficult than it needs to be. This is something that has changed my life. It's been really helpful to me. Just wanted you to know you're invited. Here's an invitation. I'd like to have you come and join us. If we've experienced this new life in Christ, how could we possibly not share it with the people we care about around us? Thank you for joining us this morning for a favorite message from Pastor Brian Clark at Lincoln Berean Church. If you'd like to hear this message again or more like it, check out Heard On Air on the MyBridge Radio app or online at MyBridgeRadio.net.